The following sermon is by Hunter Hayes, worship leader of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Hunter. Well, what a privilege it is to be with you today and to be meeting together outside again. Just so thankful that the Lord has provided another beautiful sunny day for us to meet outside for the second week in a row. This is actually the second sermon, or not, not the second, this is the first, the first sermon that I've ever prepared for by lathering up sunscreen. Yeah, I, uh, I don't, I don't want to come down from the pulpit after I preach with my face glowing like Moses when he came off Mount Sinai. Moses' face shone because he witnessed the glory of God. My face will peel if I witness too much of that glorious sun. So let's just pray that doesn't happen. The thought did occur to me that preparing for today's sermon was a little bit like preparing for my cross-country races in college. A fitting analogy, I know, because Josh, our pastor, ran a Spartan race yesterday. And, uh, you know, much like Josh spent all this time preparing for his race, I spent hours in preparation for this day, singularly focused throughout the week thinking about an outdoor event that'll be out over in about 30 minutes. And, you know, I just tons of hard work and perseverance and planning and strategy went into thinking through the details. And just like my races in college, everybody will be happier the sooner it's over. And then we'll all get to go eat lunch. So I want you to think with me for a moment. When was the last time you really wanted something? I mean, day and night, you just couldn't stop thinking about it. And everything in your life seemed pointed toward fulfillment of that one desire, that one accomplishment, maybe that one thing that would satisfy your most earnest longing. Could be something as simple as getting a raise at work, or perhaps something like buying a new house, getting someone to fall in love with you. Do you remember how you felt in that moment about your relationship with God and his part in the equation? If you're like most people, I know I've been in this camp, it tends to drive you to God in ways that are unusual and out of the ordinary for your normal life. I think we have a tendency to try to clean up our lives and be on our holiest behavior when there's something we really want God to do for us or help us achieve. It's like saying, God, if, if you can just give me that one thing that I've been wanting or, or deliver me out of this hardship, I'll get my act together so you can bless me. I think for those moments in life, we become worshipers on our best behavior. Sometimes in subtle ways, we seek to curry divine favor by presenting ourselves in a way that merits blessing from God. We seek to appease God so he can give us the life we always wanted. This, of course, is how pagan cultures used to approach their concept of the deities, to satisfy their gods, you know, the rain god or, or the, the god of sunshine or whatever. You would perform your worship rituals and, and try to act pleasing so that favor would come down from heaven upon you. I think on a much smaller scale, we see this in our human relationships sometimes. You know, if you want that raise at work, you'll be on your best behavior to please the boss. Because 
we have this, this idea that, that blessing and favor come from our efforts to please our superiors. And this is how the world works, it seems. But this is not how God wants to be worshipped. Does he want us to be on our best behavior? Yes, absolutely. Should we try to live in a way that pleases him? Yes, definitely. But should we do it so that we can earn his blessing? No, that should not be our primary motivation. So if you brought your Bible today, you can go ahead and turn to our text, which is Romans 12, and I'm just going to cover the first two chapters. And I've entitled this sermon, How to Worship God with Your Life. So uh, Perry already read this for us, um, so you may still have it ringing in your ears. But I just want to say one thing about this. this. This verse in the entire book of Romans is like a hinge. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore. And we're always taught in seminary, and I'm sure you've heard a thousand preachers say this corny little line, what is the therefore, therefore? It always looks back to what came before. So we have to be asking ourselves, what came before, and how does this verse serve as a hinge to what comes next? So in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has laid out a a treatise on the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And moving forward in chapters 12 through 15, he's going to give very uh, specific practical instructions for how believers ought to live their lives. This is very common for Paul's letters. You have a, the, the first several chapters will introduce some theology, some doctrine that is just glorious and beautiful. Some of, the, some of your favorite uh, passages you probably memorized are in these sections. And then you get to a hinge point where Paul now turns to practical application and uh, specific instructions. And that's where we are in the book of Romans. We've gotten past 11 chapters of Paul's laying out of the gospel, and now he's giving specific instructions on how you ought to live in light of this. So notice that Paul appeals to the the mercy of God. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I think we have to just pause and just recognize mercy as a motivation for Christian sacrifice. Paul could have said, I urge you by the wrath of God to take warning, right? Or he could have said, I urge you to present a sacrifice so that you can receive mercy. But that's not the way he did it. He, mercy comes first. I urge you by the mercies of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies this way. God has demonstrated himself merciful, and that is our motivation. There are three things I think there's probably more, but there's three things that came to mind for me as I uh, just contemplated what I think Paul would want us to know about God's mercy if we were perhaps reading this letter for the first time. I'll, I'll give them to you right now. It's just so we can, we can set our hearts right and, and ponder the mercy of God as we think about how God wants us to live. So number one, God mercifully redeems rebellious sinners among whom we are all numbered. God mercifully redeems rebellious sinners. Chapters one through three of Romans are a devastating blow to the concept of good person. Right? Paul Paul goes into detail 
in, in chapter one, verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in that same chapter, in verse 24, he says, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever and they engaged in all kinds of wicked immorality. He lists many sins such as envy, murder, strife, deceit, boastfulness, and says that the world is guilty of these. And then in chapter two, he says, who do you think you are that you would judge those who practice such things and think you will escape the judgment of God? Because we are all guilty in God's eyes. That's what Romans 3.10 says. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. We all justly incur the wrath of God against our sin because every single human being is caught in the insurrection of sin against the creator. And that's without exception. We're all guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that may be one verse that you've memorized from Romans, Romans chapter three. But in that same dialogue, Paul says that mercifully, as, as evil, sin, you know, sinful people that we are, we can be justified saved, forgiven through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that is God's mercy, that he saves rebellious sinners. Paul says that the righteousness of God is manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that's the first aspect of mercy that Paul wants us to be aware of, that God mercifully saves sinners. The second thing about God's mercy that we should know, he doesn't have to give it to anyone. In chapter 9 of Romans, Paul is discussing God's sovereign election of Israel, and he quotes God's words to Moses in Exodus, saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I think sometimes, certainly in conversations with people, I've heard this, and, and I may have thought this way myself at one point, but I think in our pride, as human beings, we think that God has to be merciful to everyone if he's going to be merciful to anyone. But that's not the way God's mercy works. He's not obligated to show mercy to one single person. For all have sinned. All have committed this rebellion against him. All are not equally deserving of mercy because no one is deserving of mercy whatsoever. But God mercifully saves sinners. Nonetheless, he sent his own son to save them. There's a third aspect about God's mercy that we should be aware of. In chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul wrestles with the question, how can God temporarily turn his back on his chosen people, Israel, and turn his program of salvation to non-Israelites, the Gentiles? It's, it's a complicated question, but it's one that I think we sometimes forget if we ignore our Old Testament. Because in the Jewish mind, it was a very strange thing that God's program of salvation was rolling on with Gentiles and that God, at least for, for the moment, seemed to be turning his back on his own people who rejected him. This is, this is a, a marvelous question to Jewish believers, some of whom would have been in, in the, the church at Rome, whom Paul is writing to. But Paul answers that question, how can God temporarily turn his back on his own people. He says that 
this is, this is going to result in their salvation one day because God has shown mercy to those of us who are Gentiles in order that it will somehow, believe it or not, provoke them to jealousy, provoke his own people to jealousy so that they can be saved too. So this is, this is in 11, chapter 11, verse 25. He says, lest, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Paul exclaims after, after going through this question, because Paul himself was a Jew. You have to remember this too. So this question would very naturally be on his mind. But when he gets to the point of exclaiming, you know, God still has a plan for his own people, and it does involve what he's doing right now among the Gentiles. He gets to the end of that chapter, chapter 11 and verse 33, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul is amazed by God's mercy and we should be too. And so he gets here to the first chapter, sorry, the first verse of chapter 12. And he says, on the basis of this mercy that God has demonstrated, this is how I want you to live. And he says, what does he say you have to do? He says, you have to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which I think just means present your whole life as a sacrifice to God. So what, what does that look like? What, what exactly does it mean to present our lives to God as a sacrifice? Well, I think there's some terminology here, and I think even just the concept of sacrifice should point us to what Paul's doing here. He's, he's using a metaphor that points back to the old Levitical system in which the Israelites would bring sacrifices to Yahweh. He says, your body should be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Under the old covenant, this is how you worshiped. You brought your sacrificial lamb or another animal, depending on the sacrifice, and you presented it to the priest in the temple. So there are a few aspects of this sacrifice that we're supposed to present to God, which is our lives. Uh, Number one, it's living, as opposed to sacrificial animals, which uh, were killed. This is, a, this is something that, that goes on living. In fact, there's a, a participial form here that's used that I think just captures the beauty of this. It's, it, it is a continual sacrifice that goes on living because even when you brought your sacrifice to the temple, it was alive before it was killed. But the living sacrifice, which is, which is us, our lives, goes on living continually. So that, that's one of the aspects that Paul wants us to see. Another thing he wants us to see is that it's holy and acceptable to God. These are terms that are just, you know, rife with symbolism, going back to uh, Leviticus and the stipulations about how Israelites were supposed to present their sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. And in Leviticus 1, I know, <laughs> I know a lot of us are probably afraid to open our Bibles in Leviticus. It probably gets the most dust of almost any uh, book of the Bible. 
But if you ever read it, you, right in the first chapter, you see that when an Israelite brings their, their, their lamb or their bull, it, it's supposed to be a male and unblemished. It's supposed to be the best and the most pristine of your flock. So in obedience, the faithful Israelite would do this and the sacrifice would be accepted on his or her behalf. As a faithful Israelite, you gave exactly what Yahweh demanded because he is holy. We keep reading in, Le- in Leviticus in chapter 8 and, and 9, and Aaron sacrifices the burnt offering. And it says repeatedly throughout the, chap- the chapter that Aaron did all that the Lord commanded. And then what happens on that first uh, burnt offering to Yahweh? Fire comes from heaven because the glory of the Lord was revealed and consumes the offering. That was an acceptable sacrifice. It was accepted by Yahweh. However, not even a chapter later, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, present what's, what's called unauthorized fire. It's something that Yahweh had not commanded. And fire comes out of heaven and consumes them. So we see just one aspect of the, the Old Testament sacrifices is that they were supposed to be according to what Yahweh commanded. And so what, what does that say about us presenting our lives as an acceptable sacrifice. Well, I think we ought to do what God commands us to do. Romans 6.13, you don't have to turn there, but it says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul often addresses how believers should, should show obedience through their bodies because the body is the physical manifestation of the believer's redeemed life in the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And we also contrast this, this holy living with the life of the unbelieving world, where it says in Romans 1.24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Notice the running theme of how people present their bodies and what difference it makes in their lives. Presenting your body, presenting yourself as a holy and acceptable sacrifice obviously implies far more than just sexual purity, but I can't pass up that example because such a clear con- it's such a clear contrast with what the world thinks is good and acceptable and what God really wants. So if we just review, what, what does living as a holy and acceptable sacrifice look like? Well, it means your life is surrendered to God and not live for your own selfish inclinations. It means you seek to obey him and know his commandments And it means you give yourself completely to him, not saving any part for yourself. It means that you delight in him and to do his will because we want to give him exactly what he wants. I think like the Old Testament believer, you want to be faithful to what Yahweh demands. And remember, remember this, you're not doing it out of, you you are doing it out of the overflow of your heart in light of the mercy that God has shown us. God's mercy is the motivation. That's one thing I think we always have to remember when we, Uh, contemplate our obedience to Christ, our obedience to God 
as true worshipers, those who have been redeemed by his blood, we're not doing it to earn anything. We're not doing, doing it to earn his acceptance or his forgiveness. That's already been earned for us because God crushed his own son so that we could be saved. He showed, he showed mercy to us, and that is the motivation that drives us to present ourselves to him in worship. And that's why Paul calls it here in verse 1 of, of chapter 12 of Romans. He says, this is your, your, he, your ESV Bibles have your spiritual worship. And I think the term that Paul uses actually has a little bit more of a focused meaning than that. Uh, there is some debate on this. If you look at different English translations, some of the popular ones you'll see, the, the King James Version has reasonable service, and the, the NASB has spiritual service of worship. The NIV has true and proper worship. I think they're all trying to deal with a fairly difficult term that's only used a couple times in scripture. It is used elsewhere in Greek literature. But the term, I think what it's, what it's getting at, is, at least as far as my study goes, is that this is something that is, to, is connoting what is rational or genuine uh, and true. In other words, it's, it's your true spiritual worship. It is, it is your reasonable service. I think of it like this. God has given everything for us on the cross. He's redeemed us. He's paid a massive debt for us. Does it not make sense? Is it not reasonable that we would then give our lives to him and serve him? Of course, that is reasonable. That is, that is our true worship to God because of what he's done for us. So Paul has told us what we should do in light of God's abundant mercies. We ought to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And in verse 2, he gets a little bit more specific about what this means. And he gives a simple contrast. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. When he says, Do not be conformed to this world, he uses the word, which has to do with forming something according to a pattern or a mold. Have you ever stepped on a Lego? Has anyone out there ever stepped on a Lego before? Yeah, I, I see all the, all the moms raising their hands. <laughs> if you've ever stepped on a Lego, one, one single Lego brick in your bare feet, you know the feeling of pain that rushes through your body. A single Lego brick left out by a busy toddler, has been known to bring an entire grimacing mother crying to her knees. But do you know how a Lego is made? It's fascinating, that, that one little brick. The Lego company has these silos at their factory with, uh, filled with colored plastic granules. They're like these little pebbles, little plastic pebbles. And they're fed into a machine which heats them up and injects the liquefied material into a mold that is precisely configured so that each Lego brick can fit end-to-end until you have yourself a wall or a house or what have you. Maybe our more creative builders will create a whole city or something like that. But what is critical to this process of making Legos is the mold. The plastic must go from one state and change into a completely different form being injected into the mold and it must conform to the pattern of the mold to be useful and to be a Lego. So this is a, a modern-day example of a mold or a pattern to which something can be conformed. Similar to this, 
this is what this, this term is getting at. Paul is telling us not to let our life be conformed to the pattern or the mold of this world. Do you know what being conformed to the mold of this world looks like? Well, it's the opposite of being transformed by the renewal of your mind, because that is the contrast that Paul gives. That, that idea of having your mind renewed, I think, is a very significant concept in Paul and in Romans in particular. In the first chapter, you can turn there if you want. Um, I'll just read off a few verses to you. But in the first chapter of Romans, Paul says that human beings suppress the truth that can be known about God. This is part of the mold that they are conformed to. And they become futile in their thinking when they refuse to honor him or give thanks to him. And they pursue reckless immorality and they do not see fit to recognize or acknowledge God any longer. I think this is sometimes a a pattern that we see in our own world uh, highlighted in, in several aspects of our culture. But what you see is when humanity is so opposed to God like this and when they are so insistent on their own way and they demand freedom and autonomy from God, God's judgment is actually to give them what they want. That's, that's the funny thing about it, that God's judgment is to give rebellious sinners what they are seeking and going after with full abandon. That's, that's what it says in, in Romans 1, 28. Chapter 1, verse 28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I just think of a simple illustration. Uh, perhaps it's on my mind because I, I hear it talked about a lot these days, but um, nowadays in our society, I think you know, you're considered enlightened if you deny basic facts about what it means to be human like the fact that God created male and female from the beginning, as the the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis, tells us. And nowadays, if you deny this concept of gender fluidity, uh, you're considered behind the times. You're considered not to have an enlightened mind. But in reality, you're only behind the curve of the world's all-out assault on God and his word. Paul wants believers to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. He doesn't want us to live with this debased mind that we've inherited from the fall. I think uh, what this means, at least in part, is that God, in his mercy, intends to redeem our minds from fallenness as believers. He's constantly in the process of renewing our minds. Um, I I think of uh, Titus 3, 5, and 6, uh, which says that, Um, God saved us by the the washing and regeneration and renewal according to the Holy Spirit. Um, There's definitely the sense of renewal happening in the life of a true believer that ought to be happening in your life as well. In Romans 1, as we just looked at, uh, people's foolish hearts were darkened and their minds were debased. Here in Romans 12, the believer's mind is made new as he is transformed to approve what the will of God is. In fact, the renewing of your mind is what causes the transformation. I think there are some very practical, simple applications for how we can live this out, this idea of of having our minds renewed so that we can 
discern what the will of God is? Uh, what is the mechanism of renewal? I, I think a, a huge one is the Bible, scripture. We need the word of God in our lives because it tells us what God expects of our lives. It tells us about God and his mercy. It tells us about his grace, sending his son into the world to, to redeem fallen human beings. We need to hear, we need to read the word of God on a regular basis. We need to hear it taught. We need to meditate on it when we're going to bed. We need to let scripture inform our thoughts on every issue. Why? Because scripture tells us what God wants us to do. And look at the result in chapter 12, verse, one, uh, verse two. Look at the result of having your mind transformed. It says, so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If, there, if there's one thing that I would want to communicate to you today, it's this, it's the, the word of God is the lifeblood of a Christian's true worship. This whole concept of presenting our lives to God as a holy and acceptable sacrifice and worshiping him with our lives, this is, is dependent on us understanding what he has revealed in his truth, in his word. And if our minds are renewed, then we discern what is good and acceptable in God's sight. By the word of God, we are renewed so that we do not conform to the world's sin-tainted pattern of thinking. And by the word of God, we learn how to worship God, giving our lives to him as a sacrifice. I think there's, there's one final element that I need to share in these verses with you. In the context of, of Romans 12, Paul is speaking to believers in Christ. Uh, you can see that just from the fact that he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. He's, he's calling them brothers in Christ. Not only that, he's writing to the church in Rome. And I think this has several significant implications for us. If you're not a believer in Christ, then your problem is not that you need to do what this verse is saying to present your body as a living sacrifice in response to God's mercy. Your problem is that you desperately need to receive mercy and forgiveness of Christ. So I, I just, I ask you if, if you're here today and, and that's your state, if you don't know Christ, if you do, have not uh, been redeemed by his mercy, don't pass up the opportunity to, to talk or pray with someone today, if that's the case. Um, the other aspect of this is that the context of this letter being written to a local church implies that this is more than just a command to individual believers. I, I think there's definitely a very real sense of it being a, a, a corporate thing that we as the church are supposed to present our bodies together as a living sacrifice. So that obviously has some massive implications. We need to keep each other accountable as a church to these truths because together we are lifting up a sacrifice of our lives to God. Paul says in, in the same chapter, chapter 12 of Romans, verse 5, he says, so, uh, we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And every single command that he gives in, in this chapter 12 is written in the context of the local fellowship where believers are responding to these things together and saying, how ought we to live 
in light of uh, everything that Paul has told us throughout the book of Romans. And then the last thing is just that individuals, I mean, this, this is pretty much the same point, but individual believers make up the community of God, right? Just because it is a corporate command doesn't mean that it doesn't have individual implications. We all ought to be presenting our lives faithfully to God. So this is, I mean, this just argues for um, so many things. I think obviously, uh, you know, number one, that we need to strive to pursue personal holiness in our own lives. Um, even so, we should also be on the lookout for our, our, our brethren. If we see them stumbling in sin, you know, Paul, uh, Paul writes elsewhere that we're supposed to uh, gently and, and lovingly uh, confront others because there is an aspect in which we help keep each other holy. That's why we have each other here, is to be able to, to recognize and point out where a brother is stumbling and, and be able to encourage uh, repentance and, and turning to God and obeying him. Um, with some of the remaining time that we have, I, I want to just turn, if you could, with me uh, to the book of Malachi. Just because, I, you know, I really think a lot of the Old Testament gets uh, overlooked in a lot of ways. Um, but I want to I carry this theme of being a sacrifice to God, which Paul is asking us to do. He, he wants us to live as an acceptable sacrifice to God. And Malachi is written at a time in Israel's history. I mean, it, it is the last book before the New Testament. And what happens before the New Testament? There's 400 years of silence. Because Israel has turned its back on God in so many ways. And just as the Lord told them through the prophets, through scripture, he told them, and, and this is his covenant people, he told them that he was going to deport them to Babylon, and they were no longer going to be enjoying the chosen privileged status that they had, um, being the people of God living in Jerusalem. They were going to live in a foreign land because their sin had gotten to such a point that it dishonored Yahweh and did not bring him glory as he wanted to be glorified. But just listen as I read, and if you have uh, your Bible open to Malachi, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to the abuse of the sacrificial system, knowing knowing in Leviticus 1 that you're supposed to present your best sacrifice to God. So in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors 
that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick. And this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. I I read through that in, in the book of Malachi and I'm struck by the, the emotion of Yahweh when he looks at his people who have so abused the sacrificial system that they're not even thinking with the mindset that you're supposed to have, which is I want to bring God the very best and I want to bring him exactly what he commands and exactly what he wants. They're thinking, I'll just do what's convenient for me. My blind animal over there, yeah. God can have that because I need everything else, right? And what you see is, is Yahweh's refusing these sacrifices. And it's not because, by the way, it's not because God uh, just has this thing for really uh, pristine sheep. No, what he wants is he wants our very best. He wants us to give him the best that we have to offer. And I, I read this and I know that we're, we're under a different covenantal arrangement. You know, the, the blood of Jesus has washed away our sins once and for all if we're believers in Christ. And there, there's nothing we could do that, that God would turn his back on us. He already turned his back on his son so that he could forgive us. But I'm struck when I read something like this and I think about my own life and how in, in some kind of silly, strange ways, I could also present a sacrifice that is convenient to me, but less than what God actually wants. I could live my life in a way that is not uh, holy and pure. And, and I will admit, I, you know, we all struggle. We all mess up sometimes. But our trajectory really ought to be towards holiness and living the way that God wants us to live. And I hope that what we've looked at in Romans has, has convinced you as I am convinced. And I'm, I'm often reminded of this verse. When I just think about my own life and, and I'm um, stuck just being kind of... Uh, pushed in different ways by, by worldly thinking, I'm reminded that my mind needs to be renewed by God's truth, and I need to be uh, completely submitted to him. I need to understand what he wants me to do with my life, and I want to give it up to him because I know he has been extremely merciful to me. Out of the overflow of my heart, I want to serve him, and I think that ought to be our attitude. So as Christians— we're motivated by the rich, abundant mercy of God to worship him with our lives. And what this looks like, according to, to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that we offer ourselves wholly to him in obedience. And, and this includes being transformed by the renewing of our minds, not being conformed to this world or worldly thinking or worldly living. And I think also our hearts are, are filled with thankfulness 
that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, as 1 Peter 2.24 says. Now we want to glorify God with our lives. So let's pray. Father God, we just uh, want to pour out our hearts in thankfulness to you that um, we can be redeemed, we can be saved through Christ Jesus, that he shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice to bring us close to God. Lord, we thank you that we have forgiveness in his name. Lord, we, we trust not in our own efforts to save ourselves. We trust only in you. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the gospel day by day because you crushed your son. And Lord, that is just such a horrific thought to think that, that Jesus had to bear the sin that I committed. But I know that he, he bore it completely on the tree. Lord, I know that he rose again and he has victory over the cross, over death, over the grave. Lord, I know that, that his victory is my victory. And God, I believe in your abundant mercy. I believe that you are a God who, who saves rebellious sinners. I believe that you are a God who wants us to worship him in holiness and truth, who wants us to live lives that are transformed. God, I pray that you would instill your word deep in us so that we can understand how to live our lives and that we can offer to you the best, most pure sacrifice, Lord, that we know how. God, this is our true desire. Lord, forgive us for all the times that we have uh, neglected or, or, or not presented ourselves the way you want us to. Lord, I pray that uh, you, would, you would help us this day, Lord. Transform this church. Help us to work with each other, uh, by and through each other, to, to encourage one another towards holiness and towards giving you the, the sacrifice that you deserve. God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Hunter Hayes, worship leader of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.